Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Neelam. Uh, welcome, Neelam. Welcome. I'm I've been glad looking, I'm here. I am too. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I have some very dear old friends who have been students of yours for many years, and who, you know, you know I think have been encouraging both of us to do this. So I'm glad that we finally got around to doing it. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm yeah. happy about it too. <laughs> So I don't always start interviews this way, but in your case, for some reason, I have the feeling to just ask you to summarize for us what you would say your basic teaching is. Would that be okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, that's, I would say that's, um, let's just be quiet for a moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Let's just sit quietly for a moment here. So, you know, because maybe the most important thing to, to say and the most important thing to remember is that presence or our nature or who we really are, that that is already here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that no matter where we are, no matter what's going on, no matter what we are doing, no matter what's happening, that we can that we can notice our nature. And, you know, the reason I always say that in the beginning and the reason I always remind everybody on it is that, you know, so often, even when we are on a spiritual path, even when we actually already are, you know, knowing that what is it that we are looking for, right, we still possibly live in this either big or small level of postponement, right? Like, there's some time that I'm going to get there, there's some thing that I'm going to, you know, there's some, some moment that things are going to change, there's some place that I'm going to arrive, and, and by doing that, we miss what is, what is already present, right? So I really, you know, always, myself, you, and everybody, I invite, first of all, to just check you know, in this moment, right, and see, and, and, and make sure that, you know, what we are looking for, what we want, yeah, mm -hmm. and it's already here, right? Would it be true to say, would you agree, that even though it's already here, it can be even more profoundly uh, here, in, in other words, that, or one's appreciation of it can can in, become more profound or enriched or deepen or clear or or whatever. So, uh, sort of like, oh, what's an example? I don't know. It, um, you know, like maybe music is already here on some scratchy little radio, and you're hearing Beethoven. But if it's a beautiful stereo system, you could hear the very same symphony, but much more clearly than with a little scratchy radio. So there could be some enhancement or deepening or clarification of, of one's experience of presence over time. 
Well, you know, it's it's really the reason I start with this, you know, basic, 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 and there's and there's more to what what my basic teaching is. You know, this is just the this is just the very beginning of it. But the reason I start with it is because you know that's that's really the foundation, right? Yes. And and we need to remember that because otherwise we can imagine. See, this is all imagination that we are going somewhere. And by doing that, we really are not going anywhere, you know? We're just really postponing, postponing what is already here. But a big part, you know, of our ability to be here is that our attention is not really trained to be here, right? Mm. That our attention is not used to just really recognizing or resting in our true nature, right? And maybe even more so, I would say, habitually and that's the past that's you know what we are used to that's what really brings us into this life that's what really if not recognized causes and perpetuates suffering that 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 our past is what takes our attention right Mm. or the past is what takes our attention right so first we need to recognize presence is already here then we need to recognize that in these moments of resting here that everything is okay the way it is, right? That, that nothing has to change, that nothing has to be different. This this is all our imagination again, you know, the imagination of the body mind of how things are supposed to be and, and how they are where they are going and what's going to happen and all that. Right? And and then we also have to you know so we have to recognize that the presence already here okayness already here right that suffering is really caused by our movement away from that right that every time we believe something different than what our nature really is what the truth of our nature is then we experience suffering right Mm -hmm. and then that we can do something about coming back and and facing that in a very direct way which is inquiry which is really an inquiry process right Mm. and that eventually we really find freedom and that's what you're speaking about which is abidance here no matter what right right abidance here no matter what arises but initially you know our attention is just all over the place it's just you know trained to go with whatever arises here right it doesn't really stay here it doesn't really rest so 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 maybe so we can't recognize the fullness we can't recognize the the you know absolute fullness of who we are right yeah cuz i mean life is very intense for many many people most people i would say i mean we're we're very privileged in a sense among all of humanity in terms of how easy our lives are and and even we must have our difficulties but you know the average person is just tends to be overwhelmed by distractions and pressures and problems and and so on and now people on a spiritual path you know they're kind of looking for a way out of that and and as you say perhaps the first thing to recognize is that you know what you're looking for is already here but initially that recognition can be like just such a delicate little thing it can get blown away by anything and so you know what I'm kind of referring to is the possibility of deepening it, strengthening it, stabilizing it so that it's not so easily blown away. Yeah, and that's why so much, you know, of, of the work I do these days is around teaching that a simple process of inquiry, mm-hmm. 
where people can, you know, where, where you can find your way back to your nature when challenges are here, right? Yeah. When difficulties arise. Because we all know about, you know, we can be in stillness and everything is fine. But the moment you go and move in life, you know, nothing is fine and, and just things arise and everything just happens. And, and then you want to be able to find that. And you, you don't want to have to separate, right? And say, well, this is my quiet time. This is my spiritual because this that's, you know, unnatural, right? You know, this is my spiritual and this is my life. So, 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 so through the simple process of inquiry, you know, people can, we can actually meet what arises, you see, mm -hmm. rather than always run away from it. That's, that's what Papaji used to talk about, you know, the, you know, the dream tiger, you know, and, and you're still afraid of it, right? Yeah. You're still afraid of it. So we can learn to just turn our attention and just say, hey, okay, what's really actually present? Can I be here, right? Can I meet that so my attention doesn't have to go with that? Yeah, so I, I think what you're saying is that not only can we learn to bring ourselves back to that if we've been thrown off, but that we can actually develop it so profoundly or stably that we're not thrown off even in, in the midst of trying circumstances, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and also, you know, in general, you know, the lives are, everybody's lives are so busy right now, mm -hmm. right? There's just so much going on and there's so much influences and there's so many things. And we really need to learn to have a little bit more of that, uh, you know, stability or that, or that pull towards inner stillness. Mm. Understanding that, you know, everything arises here, that, you know, fulfillment is already present, that we don't really have to, you know, follow things, that we don't really have to run after stuff. It doesn't mean to exclude life, but it means to keep coming to that bottom line that, you know, when when you are at rest, when you are still, when you are, you know, when your life is in alignment, you know, the fulfillment is already here, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say to people who, who say that that's easier said than done, like the single mom who's got three kids and is working very hard to make ends meet and, you know, who, who feels like life is just overwhelming her? Could you offer something even for somebody in that kind of state or does it one have to have kind of more ideal conditions to even begin to consider this? I would say everybody knows presence. Mm -hmm. You know, Rick, I would say everybody uh, has experiences of presence. Not everybody recognizes them for what they are, right? So a single mom with three kids, you know, that's a lot of work and a lot of, you know, attention that goes into that. But I'm sure there are moments in her life too you know, where presence is, uh, where she's aware of presence, mm -hmm. right? So maybe she can't, you know, stop her life. Maybe she can't devote hours a day to just being quiet. Maybe she can't, you know, but she could start with just recognizing that these moments, even if they are just a split of a second, you see, because that's, again, it's only mind, you know, mind classifies, well, that was really long and that was really short and that's good and that's bad, right? So even if it's just a split of a second that she can recognize and she can say, wow, that's, that's me, you see, that's my nature, that's who I am. And then what, she, what can she do to make that deeper, more stable, um, you know, less easily blown away? 
Well, what we really, anybody, mother with three children or a saint on the top of the mountain or, or anything in between, you know, what we really have to recognize, understand, and, and really get is what causes suffering, right? Because if we don't really understand that, we are still on the on the quest to change, you know, to change circumstances, to change people, to change situations, to to improve life in a way that is external. But if we understand that movement away from our nature is the cause of suffering, then we have a willingness then, because, you know, everything starts with right understanding, right? Once you understand, then you can say, okay, well, I get it. Is there something I can do about it, right? And 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 once we once we have the understanding, then we also have the willingness to say, wait a minute. When things arise, when things are difficult, and even though it looks like there's so much stuff out there, and we can, or should be, or would be successful if we changed all that, then we have this moment of coming back and saying, wait a minute, let me just see what is actually present, right? Mm-hmm. What is actually present, you know, because. Because that's where suffering is, right? Yeah. What is actually present? Can I be here? Right? It's not always easy to do that, but can I be here? Right? Mm. And that that you know, that, that change of direction that, that really changes the that really changes the direction because otherwise we are still in the outgoing movement of if I get it right, then it's all going to get better, right? Yeah. So, on that point of you know changing the whole world in order to make ourselves happy versus you know starting at home I, I think it was Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or somebody who said it's a lot easier to put shoes on your feet than to pave the earth with leather right right of course <laughs> beautiful beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and just that understanding you know even in the busyness of life if we have the right understanding we can we can pay attention you know it's not a have to or should or must. It's just well, we could, you know. Mm-hmm. It's possible. It's a possibility. So, would you advocate um, some sort of quiet time or meditation or something like that, sitting in silence, um, as a sort of blocked out part of your uh, one's day, rather than just trying to remember the silence in the midst of all the activity? Well, what I always encourage students, you know, what I always encourage is to develop their own personal you know, personal practice, mm-hmm. you know, quote-unquote, because practice is also a, a controversial word, you know, we can maybe talk about it at some point, you know, what practice means, it means a lot of things to a lot of people, there's a lot of misunderstanding, but I always say, develop your own personal practice, which is, find the time to be quiet, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, do an hour a day, or do this, or do that, but find a time to be quiet, Yeah. find the time to do it, find the time to possibly do some simple physical activity, you know, a little yoga, a little stretching, a little walking or something that moves that energy also because sometimes the patterns, uh, you know, the body mind is so connected, you know, and the patterns can be so solidified, right? Find some time to do inquiry, you know? So everybody in their own capacity right some people do a lot some people do less some people do very little but we all try to do some some of that yeah and even the person whose life is hectic they find some time to chill out in front of the tv or you know do something like that so it's possible it's just a matter of what you choose to do with that time i guess yeah and i also say to people start with five minutes you know Mm -hmm. 
do five minutes. You know, D- don't don't do and uh, you know don't don't do something that is unrealistic. You know, right? S- you know, s- s- find something that you can actually do. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So um, you've given us some basic points about your teaching, and you said that was just sort of the kernel, the essence of it, and there's more. Um, perhaps we could, well, we'll be elaborating in the course of the interview, but um, let me just refer to a couple of things that I really liked when I was, I listened to about 20 hours worth of <laughs> your recordings. Oh, uh, <laughs> 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 it was fun. I do it while, you know, cutting the grass and riding my bike and stuff like that, but um, I, I, there are a number of things I really enjoyed, and that's why it was easy to listen to 20 hours worth. Um, for one thing, I really enjoyed uh, the fact that you often tie in the physiology when you talk about this, uh, and I, not all teachers do that. You know, some of them speak as though we don't have a body, and that, that what's happening in the nervous system has no bearing on, uh, you know, what's happening in our more subjective life. Um, but I, I think that it's it's really valuable that you do that. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Yeah, and you know that comes through experience, through many years of working with people, through my own personal experience, and just seeing that there is that there are tools out there right now that maybe we didn't have before, you know. Maybe before it wasn't so, you know, clear or popular or, or understandable or easy, you know, and that, as you say, we do have a body, right? It's a body-mind, and that's, you know, it has the physiology functions in a certain way. The, the better, the more we understand that, the, the less we are in conflict with that, the more we understand that it's just natural, that that's just the way it is, that that's just the way it happens. So, Because, you know, so many people have so much judgment on their own experience or other people's experience, but their own, most of all, you know. And, and the, more, uh, the, more we, the more they can understand, the more we can understand that it's just natural, you know. It happens this way. And if they can understand the, the uh, you know, the technical part of it, so to speak, you know, and they can learn to be with it in a more efficient way. I think information is very powerful. You know, information is very useful. There's a lot of good information out there right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the brain, the nervous system, how it works, you know, the fight or flight, the survival, you know, how much of our experience is guided by that, you know. To really understand that more, I, I think, you know, very crucial. It's so much easier than to say, let's just be here. You know, because mm. teachers often say, well, just be here, right? Whatever that means, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and it's for some people, it's easier because they have some training already in being here. For some people, it's like, what, you know, what, what is that? What the hell is that, right? So, mm. so to understand, you know, how can we use the sensations of the body? How can we use the understanding of the nervous system? How can, you know, to really help ourselves to be here, I think anything that helps, you know? Anything that helps is just really useful. So Yeah. I mean, in the Indian tradition, the Vedic tradition, they have this concept of vasanas, you know, which are said to be physiological impressions that correspond with the various uh, conditionings that keep us bound, you know. And so they, they very much take, in, take that into account and say that, you know, that physiological change has to happen. It's not just a, a, a thing that's happening in consciousness alone. Yeah, of course, of course, because... Because when Vasana is present, there's a momentum there. There's the momentum of the past, mm-hmm. of it not having been experienced. And so it brings with itself its own momentum, and that momentum is what takes our attention, right? 
that's where we get caught in when it arises, you know. So, so to have a way to know to know how to address that better, I think, it's very powerful. But there's also another aspect of that, you know, that I'm thinking that initially when we really want to know presence, we really, you know, remove things. We have to go in, you know, so we have to let go of impressions, sensations, feelings, thoughts, you know, we just really, really, you know, narrow down. We just have to go more and more, remove everything or let go of everything, right? But but that's just half of it, right? And then let's say by doing that, we really arrived at the fuller realization or awakening of to our true nature, right? But that's only a beginning, right? This is not the end. So then we want to come back to the functionality in this body-mind, you know, and that requires a willingness to be present with everything that arises. Otherwise, it becomes a disembodied experience, right? Mm. An experience that is just, you know, it's it's halfway, you know, it's not fully integrated back into this this you know relative reality. That's very interesting. Uh, it, it it pretty much describes the whole course of my experience over the decades. Where you know when I first learned to meditate, there was a sort of a, a just transcending the body and going beyond and and not being sort of tuned into it at all. And these days, it's more like a a kind of a cat scan when I meditate, where there's this kind of Aware, the awareness or the attention is continues to be brought to different parts of the physiology, which I feel are, which I experience as kind of blockages, and then those dissolve, you know, and then and then another one, and then that dissolves, and it's more like a, a kind of an integration in on the physical level that seems to be taking place. Yeah, because you know that's that. Um First, we have to let go of everything, and then we need to come back to it, just in a different way. You mm. see. Because the the real awakening or the real you know, um, um, you know, realization is not about avoidance, right? Right. It's not about avoidance. It's about discrimination. You know. So how can we now, from this new perspective, come to everything, mm-hmm. and really you know embody life or embrace life, but but with this discrimination present, you know, with this. Mm with this knowing present, right? So when you were talking earlier about taking a little time out, maybe even five minutes or whatever, uh, to just have sort of exclusive focus on an inquiry process, um, would would that inquiry process possibly include a kind of a, a tuning into what's going on in the body uh, as opposed to just a mental procedure? You know, there is there is a lot. When I when I encourage people to sit, there's there's many different things I encourage them to do that for. Mm-hmm. If if you can spend some time in quiet, in real stillness, beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. When we are sitting with what has arisen and it's taking our attention, I always ask. You know, the the inquiry process that I teach, I always say inquiry is not a mental exercise, right? It's not about thinking. It's really about changing the direction of your looking, right? Instead of looking into the outer and the thoughts, feelings, emotions, you look into where there is the cause of suffering, right? Mm. So to get there, though, practically, you know, I always encourage people, and this is the this is the, the inquiry process is so much based on uh, physical noticing the sensations of your body, mm-hmm. of really noticing what's actually present. Right. Because there is, you know, there's 
there's so much going on in the mental it's, it's, it's absolutely you know useless to even try to focus on that right there's so much going on in the emotional that even though that's already closer to our natural state but it's 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 potentially volatile and you know if we're not careful it's going to take us right back into the story you know of what's what's going on mm-hmm. and and then there is the sensation of the body which is just so much more you know uh, slower and it's so much more accessible that we mm-hmm. can use it for our entryway to presence, right? Yeah. If so we to are take... willing to pay our attention to it really in a pure way, you know? So to take a hypothetical example, let's say somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend just broke up with them and they're very upset and, you know, they could sit and do a, a sort of inquiry process. So they could sit there thinking, oh, what a jerk he is or she is. <laughs> that would be the mental level. Or they could just right. be sitting there and feeling all these emotions of loneliness and sadness. Or, or they could tune into the physiology and, and get down to what's really being felt on that level. Beautiful. Beautiful. And they could not, because the, ten- the, 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 the tendency or the, you know, the... Uh, movement oftentimes is so much into the story, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So when you're sitting and you're just really noticing what is present in your body, that's something you can actually be with, you see? Mm-hmm. You can't be with the thoughts. You can't be with that amount of emotion that is still fueled by some kind of story, right? Right. But you can be, you know, with the with the sensation in your body. And by doing that, you actually uh, coming or bringing yourself back to the present, right? Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, one word that I heard you use a lot, uh, which I really appreciated, uh, was tenderness. There's a lot of emphasis on the word tenderness, and uh, let's let's talk about that for a few minutes. Um, I perhaps we can define, or maybe I should just let you start by defining in what sense you use that word. You know, tenderness is natural. When we are in our natural state, you know, when we are at rest, when we are not struggling with what is here, where there's no conflict, tenderness is naturally present, right? It's, it's, just, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just what is, right? It's just how we really are. Most of the, you know, it's, it's, um, you naturally experience tenderness when you are in a quiet place. You know, if anything was to, if you if you're quiet and there's nothing going on, you probably wouldn't experience anything. But let's say something comes into the field of your experience, you would most likely experience tenderness towards that when you are really, really at rest, right? Now, in the process of conditioning, which is, you know, when I when I say conditioning, I mean an inability to be here. You know, when I say conditioning is the habits that we learned to avoid our true nature, right? So in the process of conditioning, we moved away from tenderness, right? We actually invested a lot into harshness, into holding, into being tough. You know, you just, you just, you know, you, you have to toughen up. You just, you, you have to move through it. You know, you have to. There's a lot of stuff out there, you know, uh, conditioning-wise that just tells us to deny what is actually present, right? So. Well, I was just going to say. Well, the word. It seems that the world tends to coarsen us. You know, there's. It's. It's a big, gross world in in a sense. And you know, we get out there. We we have to work hard. We have to do this and that. And the the tenderness kind of gets um, covered over with a, a thick skin of of 
harshness or coarseness uh, right. involuntarily almost right. you know yeah that's what i mean conditioning but but there's a difference between you know having a certain sense of boundary when we are when we are existing in the world and having to toughen up the inner you see mm. having to toughen up that access to your true nature you know just that's oftentimes a survival you know mechanism or 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 a strategy that you know gets developed over time right it, as we are living in the body mind the strategy of you know you have to toughen up because it's just unsafe but but that really uh, just cuts down on the natural sense of tenderness too right but the word strategy makes it sound volitional like okay here's what i'm going to do i'm going to get tough so that i can protect myself but it almost seems that it happens involuntarily um, and to take an extreme example i mean these soldiers who go over to iraq and afghanistan you know and they're bombarded with such a stressful situation then they all come back with ptsd uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, where there's been a, a extreme sort of accumulation of stress and coarsening, and quite the opposite of tenderness. So, well, when I when I uh, Rick, you know, that, that's a little, it's a little different. What I speak, it's a little okay. different, and 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 it's really not so much what happens; it's more how we are with what is here. You see, mm-hmm. how we are with what is here. You know, because I understand PTSD and I understand harshness and I understand things that happen. But uh, and I agree with you the voluntarily involuntarily because it involuntarily the the body mind nervous system responds in a certain way. But then we solidify in that response. You see, then we believe that. Then we say, well, this is how it is, right? And, and, and that's not really the truth, right? This is not how it is. It's just that in certain situations, your body, mind, your physiology is going to respond in a certain way, naturally, obviously, of course, right? However, if that response gets solidified and we believe in it, then we start to believe that we have to protect, you see, that on the inner, I'm talking on the inner, I'm not talking be indiscriminative with everything and everybody in the world. That's not what I'm saying, right? I'm just saying on the inner, you know, are you at rest, you see? Are you at rest or are you suffering? Or are you holding something, right? Because if you're holding something, that's going to cause suffering. No matter what it is, PTSD, you know, a challenging experience, which I have a lot of experience myself, you know, through my own illness. How are you with that? Are you at rest with that? Are you? Can you be here with it, or are you suffering, right? When it's happening, right? It's still, it's still happening. You know, we can, can uh, avoid that, right? So, do you think that it would be possible for, let's say, let's say that, <laughs> let's say the army hires Neelam to train the soldiers uh-huh. who are going over to Iraq and Afghanistan to better deal with the stress they're going to encounter by learning to, kind of just what you just said to sort of be with it to not believe not buy into the belief of of so and so would I, that would, I, I, is it possible or is it not fair to take such an extreme example i don't know that they would want to go then if i if i was sitting with them <laughs> good point <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if anybody in their right mind would actually want to do that you know so if the army hires me that's probably the end of the army right <laughs> good i hope they hire you <laughs> <laughs> but but you know I want to say something about the tenderness because 
so 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 much you know in our conditioning this harshness right mm -hmm. and even the spiritual practice can become very harsh yeah and the reason why i say so much tenderness you know because even people when they sit with what has arisen they say okay are you able to be here all right what's wrong with you why can't you do it and that's the inner that's their inner right that's their mm -hmm. inner and i say well tenderness is natural you see so 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 discriminate within see that when you are harsh when you are you know tough with yourself even if it's about spiritual practice then it's useless then it's the past you see then it's not natural then it's just it's not going to help you right mm. it's not going to do anything for you so so that's that's the level of discrimination i would like for everybody to have you know like wow Tenderness, you know, if if it means that going to sleep right now is the most tender thing to do, then that's what's going to help you the most. You see, mm -hmm. it's not going to help you to sit there and toughen it out, right? Yeah. So perhaps we could say that you're uh, you're, you're you're warning against straining in the name of naturalness or tenderness. You know, one shouldn't strain. One should just be natural. Natural, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and going back to natural, because, you know, so much we spend in self-hatred. So much people spend in self-hatred, you know, in little ways and in big ways, you know. So so that's just not productive, right? Not productive. But going back to your example, you know, of, uh, of the army and, and the PTSD and, you know, let's say hypothetically, because I don't really, you know, it's so hard to judge anybody else's experience or gauge, not judge, but gauge anybody else's experience. But hypothetically, if, the, if consciousness is really used to resting, if it's really so much more conditioned to just be in its own natural state, when these difficult, challenging experiences come in, they are most likely going, to, we are going to be much easier with that, you see? Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to be nice. I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant. I'm just saying there's a possibility to remain in that tenderness with that, you see, which is huge, which is, I think, humongous because that means there's no suffering. Yeah. Well, think, think of the Bhagavad Gita as an example. I mean, Arjuna was saying, I'm going to go get these guys, and Krishna then reminded him of his mother, and, he, and that brought this wave of tenderness, and he just kind of, then he thought, I can't fight at all, and then Krishna kind of got him to the you, point you where he would, to, right. yeah, yeah, I still have to do it, but here, do it, do it well established in presence, you know, exactly. then you'll be okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think a, a synonym we could use for tenderness though, which has a negative connotation, might be vulnerability, you know, that uh, if one might think that if one is too tender, then one is going to be vulnerable. You know, vulnerability, but I would say, again, these are, these are, inner, these are inner places, you know, I would say vulnerability to the human condition. Really understanding, you know, that there are limits to the body-mind, that there are limits to this experience, that there are certain things that do cause harm, that there are certain things that are going to have consequences, you know, and not in the conditioned way, consequences like we were taught, you know, in, in by our parents, but real, you know, the certain things do cause harm. That's the truth of it, right? Sure. So if you have a real vulnerability to the human condition, you know, mm -hmm. really understand, wow, this is really fragile, this situation. You know, this situation is fragile. This is the truth of it, right? Can yeah. we live in that? Not in some idea of vulnerability that means, you know, 
I am exposing my feelings to everything and everybody whenever I feel like it. That's not the kind of vulnerability or tenderness that I'm speaking about, right? And actually, you know, when you are tender, when you are in that right relationship with what is here, then you're so much stronger, you see. Mm -hmm. Then you're so much stronger than anything or anybody else because you're real. You can really be with that. And that's like, whew, you know, powerful in the universe, right? Mm -hmm. If that happens. So. Somehow when you said that, I was reminded of the image, which I've seen many times, of a little tender weed or plant pushing itself right up through the asphalt and, you know, coming up through this hard thing. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. And the winds blow and the cars go and everything, and it's still there, you know. Yeah. It's, it's the true vulnerability, right? Yeah. It's the true softness. Now, in your own case, you know, you haven't been um, secretive about the fact that you've had health challenges and you're sensitive to electronics and things like that. Could that somehow be a phase that you're going through because of the tenderness? It's made you vulnerable and that you might come somehow eventually toughen up without losing the vulnerability and there, thereby not have these challenges? Or am I, am I off the mark on that? Uh, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. And, and, you know, it's very hard to put the illness in the context because there are, they are some real physiological components here that, that really – you know, they will have to get into a lengthy, lengthy conversation. But, you know, in truth, what I always believe and what I always see that everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And, and if there is, there, there is a level of transformation that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this is how it's happening. You know, this is how it needs to work itself through, you know. And I, I can't really, you know, again... It will be a lengthy conversation if I would start to get into all the details. You know, I can't really, I can't really say much more about it other than there's a level of transformation, there's a level of uh, patterning that needs to let go. You know, and for some reason, this is how it's choosing to to work itself out. You know. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I've interviewed a number of people who've said a similar thing that they've really gone through a sort of a physiological hell in the process of undergoing a transformation. And, and even like, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, he went through this disease and he almost died. And then when he finally came out of it, he was like St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> he woke exactly. up in this exactly. spiritual reason. So it, it almost seems in the, both in the, in the traditional literature and in contemporary examples that not always, but sometimes people have to go through a real meat grinder physiologically in, uh, in order to facilitate or complete some sort of transformation that's taking place. And also, you know, what I'm learning in the midst of that, I don't think I could learn in any other way, you see. Mm. So if this, if this body-mind, if this vehicle is meant to serve in a certain way, you know, if it's meant to share in a certain way, and, and that is part of that information, then I can tell you there's a lot of information here, you know, that wouldn't be there in, uh, because, you know, if it was happening in any other way, so... Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, you quoted, uh, I think Papaji is saying, well, this is more with relationship to the psyche, but you, you quoted him as saying, the deeper the psychological wounding, the deeper the realization. And in this case, we're talking about a physiological, um, you know, travail that you're going through. But do you somehow feel like this process you're going through is um, conducive to deepening your realization? You know, I don't really hold it in any particular way. Mm -hmm. Nor do I hold the realization in any particular way. You know, I don't really, I don't really measure. There's no measurement, right? Uh -huh. 
you know so i can't tell you know i mean i'm not really i'm not really thinking about it like that i'm not really holding it like that so it's very hard to to answer that question all i can tell you is what i am learning from it what what i'm seeing is so um, unbelievable in a way you know it's so it's so un, so different and it's so you know i don't know that there would have been any other way to 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 see that you know so is it possible to put that into words what you're learning or is it more of a, a visceral kind of thing that you couldn't really speak articulate um again it's so much you know that we could probably talk for several hours about it you know yeah. um i don't know i I don't know if there's anything, uh, you know, easy that I could... Well, first of all, just the vulnerability of the human body, right? Mm -hmm. Just the real, real vulnerability of that, right? And at the same time, a real, you know, ongoing sense, which I can't say, you know, it wasn't there before, but a real ongoing sense that everything is okay the way it is. Yeah. That there's just nothing that can shake that, you know, that can move that, that there's no, no circumstance, no situation, no, you know, body-mind condition that can, really, that can really change that or shake that, so. Yeah, I think sometimes people hear that phrase, everything is okay the way it is, and it sounds to them to be sort of um, passive or defeatist or, you know, lacking in motivation, but I think the way you mean it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a sort of a, a divine intelligence that orchestrates our lives, that orchestrates the universe, and we can trust in that to have our best interests in mind, ultimately. Well, when I say, you know, everything is okay the way it is, I mean, in this moment, as you're sitting here, and mm -hmm. you can check, and, you know, we can just check on that, in this moment, when you really pay attention, when you for a moment just notice, you know, what is here, then does anything have to be different? No. No. Yeah. No. Now, what if you had a severe toothache? Would, it, would anything <laughs> have to be different? That's, that's the mind, Rick. That's okay. the mind, right? The mind goes, well, what if, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before we go there, you know, what you're recognizing right now is part, it's what, what is really the, the you know, um, uh, symptom of our natural state. Mm -hmm. You know, in truth, in reality, everything is okay the way it is. That's the truth, right? Yeah. It's not you. You don't want to translate it into the ego place that says, "Oh, things are fine, no problem, we can do it." You know, it's just okay. That's not what I'm saying, right? It's a real deep recognition that everything is okay the way it is, just because. You see, mm -hmm. that's the truth, right? So, what would that mean if we really allowed it? Because passive is a story. You know, again, that's a story. Oh, okay, it's just a passive. What it would really mean is, it would mean. You are okay the way you are. Nothing has to change, right? Mm -hmm. Your life is okay the way it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing has to change. Everybody is okay the way they are, right? Nothing has to change. The world is okay the way they are. Or the way it is, right? Nothing has to change. And is that powerful, you know? Is that yeah, powerful? If we just it is. really would allow that, you know? And yes, <laughs> and to me that doesn't preclude going out and, you know, trying to solve this problem or, you know, working at your job or improving your life in various ways or helping the suffering. Or, it's, like, it's like it doesn't mean you – it's like there's a simultaneous paradoxical kind of acceptance and, and dwelling in, in everything being okay the way it is, which is not incompatible with 
improving things in various ways. Well, cha- change is part of life, and, and, and it doesn't mean you're not going to change things. It only means what, what I'm always interested in is where are you coming from, mm-hmm. right? Because if we talk about okayness, then it gives us a, it gives us a, um, you know, a touchstone. That's yeah. reality. Right. So if you are in all honesty, let's say something happened in your life right now, you know, I don't know, something happened and you are just struggling with it. And in all honesty, you, you would ask yourself, is that okay that that's happening right now? Yeah. And most likely your answer will be no. Then we know the gap between truth and reality and where you are, you mm-hmm. see? And by knowing that gap, we can we we know that we can do something about it. See, yeah. so we don't have to suffer, right? So much change happens from a place of not okayness. Mm-hmm. When you move from a place of not okayness, you you do change, but you create more of the same, which is not okayness, right? Yeah. Because the change is not real. You know, the change is based on your body, mind, ego idea of what's supposed to be. The change is not a real movement that happens in presence, right? So, so, so that understanding of okayness is not there to, to justify things. It's not there to say everything is okay, that means we don't have to do anything, we are all fine, and it's all <laughs> fine. It only means, you know, oh, I have a reference point. Mm-hmm. I have a place to go when, because the mind is so deceptive. When things are here, you know, you can tell yourself that you are okay. But in truth, you will check and you will go like, whoa, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And that means this is where I am at and this is where reality is. You know, can I be here? Right? Yeah. Can I be here? Which is just cuts down on so much unnecessary stuff, you know, mm-hmm. just unnecessary stuff. Well, to take an example, I mean, we just uh, have had a lot of tornadoes in the Midwest. And theoretically, our house could have gotten hit by a tornado last night. And I can honestly say that if that had happened, throughout that experience there would have been a, a kind of a foundation of everything is okay even though this is happening and then there also would have been the motiva- motivation to clean up contact of the insurance course. agency of do all course. the things of that course. needed to be done but there's there's a there's always a dimension or an element or or, or a, a level of one's life in which everything is okay regardless of what's happening at least in my experience so exactly far. exactly and if you went to be not okay with that you will be suffering and then your action will be so different. You still will have to clean up. Right. But you will be in such a worse shape, you see. Yeah, yeah so I see what you're saying. <laughs> it will be such a much more difficult experience. So. Yeah. No, that's really good, you know, because I think sometimes people hear that teaching. And, and in fact, there was a, a teacher who I was going to interview, and uh, he speaks a lot like this. And some other guy was getting in touch with me and saying, I, I hate that. I want to come on the week after that guy and refute him, you know, because I feel it's, it seems so lacking in compassion and so, and so on. But I think if it's understood in the proper context, it's not at all uh, devoid of compassion. Well, well, because, because that kind of okayness means every, what it means, translation, means everything arises here. Yes. That's the truth. We can't avoid, you know. Can I avoid the the uh, the body mind experience that I have been going through over the last several years? No. Can I be in struggle with it? Sure. Would that be easier for me? No. Can <laughs> right. I be at rest here? Sure. You know, would that does that make it easier? Definitely. Right. Yeah. So that's all it means. Okayness. You know, it doesn't mean some kind of idea. You know. So. No, that's really good. I'm I'm glad we dwelt on that point a little bit. So. Um, 
Let's shift gears and let's talk a little bit about awakening. Um, we throw the term around a lot, awakening, enlightenment, and so on. How, how do you define those terms? Well, first of all, when I, when I say awake, I mean, when I say, you know, our nature, who we are, that's awake, mm-hmm. right? So, so every moment you are aware of that, that's awake. And what are you aware of, just for the sake of everyone listening? If, if you're aware of your nature, who you are, what is it you're aware of? Stillness, presence, rest, God, okay. being, you know, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. In no mind, you know, the place of no identification, just these moments of just, ah, space, right? Yeah. Clarity, you know, just here, right? So. And is it sufficient for the situation to be that the, uh, uh, a sense of individuality is aware deep down of some presence or stillness? Or is it really that one has to, the whole identity has to no, shift? No, and this, one this, this, the sense of individuality has to disappear even if it's just for a second, right? Right, right. That's what I call awake, because then there's nobody there to really perceive that. It just happens, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, though, you know, for many of us, it takes... a in the beginning we will be aware of these moments but then we will contract back into the sense of identity right you know when we first become more consciously aware of these moments because everybody has these moments right everybody has them just nobody really pays attention and knows what they are right Right. but then but then when we more consciously become aware of it you know it happens and it doesn't happen that's what it looks like right Mm -hmm. it happens and and then it doesn't happen because we we contract back into the sense of identity again right yeah and and so in the process of awakening if we can call it that most of the time we'll be going back and forth between those for quite a while you know nobody knows for how long right because there's no like measurement of that again right Right. but there will be this like oh wow this is amazing you know like look at Rumi you know like just read Rumi's you know poetry and see the process of just falling in love uh, being totally enticed by the beloved right being uh, you know longing for it and desiring it da, 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 and eventually whew, just being it right mm-hmm. so that's a very very you know step-by-step process of awakening really so so we go back and forth between these realizations and recognitions and then contraction into the body mind and you know and and so it gets more and more subtle you know we can even still be in expanded states of consciousness in bliss and I mean, just totally amazing, beautiful things, and we, there is still a sense of identity present, right? Mm-hmm. Until eventually something happens. This is that moment when, you know, that sense of identity where, where it burns through, and we are just simply unequivocally aware that who we are is just none of that, right? Mm-hmm. That none of that is who we really are. And once that happens, that doesn't go away, Right. Right. Because now something has happened, and as before, the sense of, you know, um, identity was so focused on the body-mind, like we would just, you know, when you, when you would close your eyes, you would just go back to the sense of your body. Now, when you are quiet, what you go back to is vastness, right? Mm-hmm. right. It's presence. It's just natural. This is not, nobody's doing it, but it's just like something has shifted in the, in the ground, you know, of our experience, right? It's no more just relating to this. This is just part of it, right? Um, if there, if both things are, st- are you saying that one com- completely gets one gets to a point in which there are 
there's no resurrection or up or of a sense of individuality or anything, or are you saying that the pri the primary identification is with the vastness and on the surface or in some kind of utilitarian way there's the individuality and all of its you know of course, likes of and dislikes and quirks yeah, and whatnot yeah, yeah yeah the individuality doesn't disappear necessarily but there is really not but that but that ground of experience has changed it takes not a back anymore, seat so to speak <laughs> exactly it's not anymore just oh this is me it's like like now this is me, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Everything is me, right? Everything is me. And then there is that sense of in individuality still here too, of course. Yeah, I have a friend named Bob, and he said that uh, one, he, he underwent a profound shift at one point. He said prior to that, it was always sort of Bob having the experience of consciousness, and then after that, it was consciousness having the experience of Bob. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I said you walk in like this, you know, and then you walk out like that, and it's like it's, it's nothing really changed, but so dramatically changed, you know, so. Yeah. When we use the word dramatic, it brings up the point that in some cases it seems – for some people, this sort of shift is very gradual, so much so that they hardly notice it. And other people, it's this, you know, light and day, night and day, profound, dramatic shift. Uh, would you agree with that in your experience of, as a teacher? And so? what, what I see more is that, you know, that there is a moment in which we really, that the realization really happens. Mm -hmm. However, that moment can be a very subtle experience. Right. For some of us, you know, again, spiritual experiences or, or, you know, the amounts of it and all that has nothing to do with awakening, right? Mm -hmm. That just is individual. For some people, it happens like that. For some people, it happens like something different. It doesn't really matter. So, so the shift itself for some of us can be, wow, you know, just fireworks. Mm -hmm. And for some of us, it's going to be like, oh, that's it? <laughs> wow, that's amazing, right? So, but this, but still, there is a recognition there because otherwise, before there's still this going, you know, we are still going to it, you know. It's like, oh yeah, that's a nice place. I want to go there, <laughs> you know. And there's like, well, there's no going because it's here, right? Because everything is here. So, do you mind talking about your own path a little bit? Um, you know. Were you a fireworks lady, or were you a subtle gradual, or you know, did you go through years of on again, off again? Got it, I lost it, or, or, or what? It, again, a long story. So you know, I'm going to try to make it really short here. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, um, um, at a certain point in my life, for a long time, I wasn't even aware that I'm on a spiritual path. I am sure that that's true for many people, you know, I wasn't even aware. However, there was that momentum that was moving me in a certain direction, which I then recognized later, right, later. And so at some point there is, you know, this like, oh, there is something out there and I really want that, but I don't even know what it is and I don't even have a name for it or I don't even have, you know, I don't know what path is or anything, right? And then eventually, you know, as it quickens, as it comes more to the, you know, to the actual experience of it, uh, I just started to have different experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, I just started to have different experiences that were so unusual that I didn't know what they were. I didn't know where they were coming from. At that time, they were really scary. You know, they were terrifying because you go out on a street and you, 
suddenly see people's past lives and their karma and their different things. I mean, just, you know, something opens and you're just suddenly in this, like, totally different world. And you're like, mm. what the, you know, what the hell is happening, right? And you, you hadn't been doing any spiritual practices or anything. This was just happening. Not, not, not spiritual per se, you know. I was doing, there was some kind of kundalini kind of thing, yoga, or I don't know, remember exactly. There was something, but there wasn't really spiritual per se. Suddenly, boom. Something happens and this body-mind is just starting to experience a lot of expansion and a lot of, you know, visual and, 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 and sensory experiences. And, you know, this like not able to sleep. There's just a lot of energy, just transformation going on. It's like there's no understanding whatsoever. And then I, and then I started to look for a teacher. You know, I started to look for somebody. And um, I go to these Buddhist places and, and, you know, and they say, well, it's just you know, whatever is happening, just be here and just do these practices, you know, and, and, and I'm there, you know, trying, you know, trying to do visualization, and I just can't, because every time I sit quiet, I just go into total bliss, you know, <laughs> so I just, there's like, there's like nothing, there's like no momentum towards that, you know, yeah. so finally I go like, well, I don't think this is working, you know, because I'm just laughing most of the time, this, because I just can't make myself, you know, go there, so, right. So, and eventually, you know, coming more in touch with Ramana and reading some writings of Ramana, but still really not fully trusting, you see, not being able to fully trust. So then really looking for a physical teacher and then uh, meeting another teacher before I met Papaji and just spending some time, a couple of years involved in this and, and again, spending endless hours just in bliss and meditation, right? Mm -hmm. But the moment you know I would get up, there will be suffering. Yeah. And 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 the, and the, and by that time, the 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 change will be so profound from, you know, the expanded states and the blissful states to the suffering states that I just thought like I'm going crazy. I think. Wow, it's you interesting. Know? So it was a complete on-off black-white kind of shift. Huh? It wasn't like the, some of the some of the bliss carried over into your daily life. Some some of it did, but there was such a huge there was such a huge difference between me just sitting there. I could sit for hours in bliss, and then I would get up, and then I would be like, what? This is just, you know, suffering, right? Yeah. And then I remember lying down at some point, and this thought arose that said, you know, I want to find somebody who is going to show me out of this. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and a week later, I was in satsang. Never heard about satsang. Never knew anything about it. A week later, somebody brings a flyer to my house about satsang. You know, and it's a flyer of a satsang with Gangaji, and I'm reading it, and I'm just thinking, huh, that's interesting. This woman didn't spend, like, you know, millions of years sitting in, I mean, I don't know that, but she didn't spend years in this lifetime sitting in a monastery, you know. So so, so eventually I go there, and, and so goes from there, you know. Mm. Shall I tell you more? Or? Yeah, yeah, please. This is interesting. So, 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 you know, I go to satsang with Gangaji, and... And in the beginning, there's just so much love in that place that there's a total contraction, you know, mm -hmm. in my body. And just goes like, just no way, I'm just not going there. <laughs> so I just don't go. And, uh. and she, at that time, she used to travel like for a month at a time. Mm -hmm. so, so after a few days, I go like, oh, well, you know, maybe let's try it again. <laughs> so I go there and I go there and just instantaneous almost, my mind drops and it's just total absolute stillness, you know, and just bliss and, and just like nothing ever happened you know mm -hmm. so I write her a letter she invites me we talk you know and all that 
And then somewhere halfway through, she always has had Papaji's picture with her, you know, and I somewhere halfway through, I suddenly see Papaji, you know, which I didn't see before. The picture, you, know, you mean? Yeah, yeah, but you know, the picture was there all the time, but I just didn't see it, right. you know, how you suddenly like see mm-hmm. something. And I recognize in that moment, this is my teacher, and that's where I have to go, and and that's it, you know. So, so about six months later, I'm in India with Papaji, and you know, hmm. just that's that's how it went. And so, how long did you have to be with Papaji before this phase of, you know, it, either bliss or suffering, one of the, you know, ended See, and, and it, it sort of settled down. What was interesting is that initially when I saw Papaji, I just went like, wow, this is just totally unbelievable, and this is amazing, and it's unbelievable that that exists, you know, in a human form, that that exists. Mm -hmm. However, then, you know, the first month there was like, okay, well, I have had all these experiences already, see, still a very subtle veil of the ego, you know, that would just sit there. Well, you know, what are you going to show me, right? Here I am, right? I have already experienced so much, you know. And, and, and of course, slowly realizing with some help, you know, that this is, this is just wrong. This is not the right way to be there, you know. And then something drops inside, and I recognize that I just have to fully give myself to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Just give myself to it, and I do. I give myself whatever arises for me to do, write him a letter, talk to him, do this or do that, whatever it is. I just follow that, you know. And I follow that to to the point, to the place where, you know, I ask him at some point, can I come and sit close near to him when he gives satsang? And he says, okay. And I go there and sit there, you know, with my eyes closed, and I, and I hear what he's saying to everybody, you know. And this has been months already. I'm there for months, two or three months already. I have heard him speak, right? But I'm hearing, for the first time, I'm really hearing on the inner, you know, what he says to everybody. And I, for the first time, I really recognize what he's speaking is true, you know. Mm-hmm. This is just the truth, you know. And so, and so something relaxes in my own body mind you know we can say trust or whatever something happens you know and and that very day i go to um you know i'm going out for dinner and suddenly this huge fear of death arises you know and i just go like no way <laughs> so i'm just going to you know have the dinner and you know sit there with the with, with some friends and have the dinner and i'm just and the fear of death is just like right here you know mm-hmm. just totally present and I'm just like, I'm not going there, right? And so, and then I walk out of the dinner, you know, and I'm, and, and three little Indian girls come up to me, just in the middle of the street, you know, there I am walking, and they come up, and each has a little flower, and they just give it to me silently, mm-hmm. you know, each just gives me the little flower, and, you know, and they don't say anything, we can't speak, you know, and my heart just totally opens, you know, and just breaks, and I just go like, okay. I'm just going to go home and just sit, you know, and just see what happens. So, so there I am, you know. So you went home and you sat. Home? And you mean home in Lucknow, not home? home. In Lucknow, right? Yeah. I'm just going to go and just sit, you know, and and I sit and you know, and it just takes a second, you know, and that that there's that huge desire to just run and be with Papaji and sit at his feet, you know, and that fear of death just arises and just sweeps through the body. And there I'm sitting and, you know, 
still with my eyes open, I can see everything disappearing, you know, just what we see, what we, you know, normally relate to as, as reality, everything disappears, and there's just, you know, total stillness, and there's just a total, you know, just, you know, what I can't describe, you mm-hmm. know, undescribable, so. And that was it? I mean, would you consider that moment to have been the the shift, or was is it more more gradations than that? You know, because that when it happened, it was just timeless, and you know, and and it took it took a long time to come to the sense of the body mind, mm. and 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 whatever else was happening. You know, that was that was that took that took its time, and then you know, I have written Papaji a letter about it. So so the next day. I'm going to satsang with this letter and you know I walk into satsang and suddenly I re- re- realize everything is me you see mm-hmm. Papaji is me everything is me there's no there's really no separation you see mm-hmm. so so from that moment on I'm not saying that that's the end of the embodiment right. I'm just saying from that moment on there's just no doubt or no question about that so yeah it was a very significant milestone you could say yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's that moment on, then, then you know, wh- what I know is everything is okay the way it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Truth is our nature, presence is our nature, this, everything is here, I'm everything, uh, you know, there's really no no separation, and that's, you know, that's it, right? Was there some um, profundity or fullness to the experience at that point there with Papaji and in the midst of that tra- that transition, which tended to fade over time, or... Would you say even the opposite that it's uh, enriched or matured over time? And, no, and the, you know, there, there is there is a certain there was a certain fullness and a certain you know first of all the body mind was challenged by the experience. Uh-huh. There was such a tremendous shift and such a tremendous amount of energy that you know there were just some physiological physical things that were going on that just challenged the body, right? And and it eventually got used to that. And I would say, though, maybe there was a couple of years of just real, real expanded state, which then eventually gradually settled, you know. It settled um, into more of a sense of just, um, you know, fulfillment, right, Or, 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 or just, you know, I don't know, rest, you know. So, so, so. At some point, it just so became clear, you know, even more again, it's not about states, right? Even that, even that expansion is just really what the, you know, what the body-mind goes through. It's, it's, not the, it's, not the, it's not the essence, it's not the core of the experience. Mm. Yeah, this point about states, um, it's, a, it's a kind of a point of debate in, in, in many spiritual circles, and even among uh, myself and a friend who uh, is a... A student of yours or husband, um, I th- Ramana said at one point. I, I came across a quote that there are no levels of awareness, but there are levels of experience, and I think that's where the confusion arises. You, you know, awareness itself is just an homog- homogeneous wholeness, but e- experience—the the degree to which one embodies awareness—then uh, it seems like there's no end to the the. I, ca- I was kind of saying this in the very beginning of the interview. No, no end to the um, to the embodiment or to the integration or to the fullness with which that can be um, lived or expressed. Uh, would you agree or no? Let's clarify Ramana. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, please. Clarify Ramana because you know what what he just simply said he just simply set a stage for the levels of um levels. See words are just so difficult because we just start to interpret that. Yeah. Basically said, okay, realization is one uh, uh you know um station in this right Mm -hmm. but what he also said and this is what we have to remember because that's where we get into argument what he also said you know once realization happens there is no more willful volition right when a true realization happens there is no more willful volition Mm -hmm. so there isn't anybody there who can desire anymore for anything else right and he said you know uh, uh, based on the karma uh, the individual karma there will be a momentum from the past that would bring certain individuals call them to a certain level of awareness after realization but that has nothing to do with our normal you know perception or understanding of okay well realization is here now what's next right? right what can we do now to you know because realization means that willful volition is has ended right so if i understand what you just said um there may be uh, further maturation into more kind of uh, complete levels of awareness or realization or whatever but it's not by virtue of some individual motivation or volition that that happens it has to just do with one's karma yeah. one one's I, dharma whatever exactly and i would not even say more complete because realization that's it right. that's what he's saying mm-hmm. but some you know um again individuals would reach a different level of awareness and that's predestined right this is not something that can huh. be done that can be desired that you know desire itself is the contradiction to that right yeah so Perhaps it has to do with what one's kind of destiny is as a, you know, tool of the divine or whatever. But like, so would you say that someone like Neil, someone like Ramana or Papaji or whatever, what might be an example of someone whose destiny was such that they reached a more? I have to choose my words very carefully. <laughs> I know because that's the trouble, you know, because we really we have already so much terminology and we already have so many ideas. We do have to be careful. You're right. Well, think of this as a metaphor. Maybe Kabir, who was really in the transcendent state, you know, Mm -hmm. who was really living in the transcendent state. Mm -hmm. Maybe Kabir. That's something that I. That's somebody that I can say. You know, I. I, You know. You know. Well, here's a metaphor that might help us. Let's say you have a a a Christmas bulb, Christmas tree bulb, little light bulb, and it's plugged into the 120 volt circuit in your house, and then you have a, a spotlight out in the driveway that's maybe you know. Two, three hundred watts or something, and it's really bright. They're both, both of those bulbs, so to speak, appreciate the same electrical field, but one of them shines more brightly because that's its function. But uh, I want, but I want to make it more practical. Is that okay? Sure, please. Because you know what we, because this is something we don't have any control over. Right. Nobody knows that, and nobody has any control over that. That either happened or it didn't. That's either happening or not. You know. Yeah. Is it is it a, is it a huge light or is it a small light bulb? Right. Nobody knows. So if you're if you're born a little Christmas bulb, you're going to be a Christmas bulb appreciating the, the the electrical field. And if you're a spotlight, you're going to be a spotlight. But both of them are plugged into the same uh, 
the same source, so to exactly. speak. Exactly. But, yeah. but what we can do, because this is nothing we can do about that, right? Mm-hmm. right? What we can do, and this is really, you know, I really stress the need and the, and the necessity for the process of embodiment, right? Mm-hmm. I really see that the awakening, as it is the end of a certain part of our journey, is really a beginning. It's really just an entry point into reality, right? Yeah. Into truth. So, because this, where we end up on this spectrum between a tiny bulb and a huge, you know, thing, I mean, nobody knows, and who cares, right? This is just what's happening, right? This is just what's going to happen, or not, right? But what we can do is we can really, at every moment, remain in the awareness of, am I at rest or am I suffering? Right. And that's something we can do, right? Because we don't know when tendencies are going to arise, we don't know what circumstances are going to bring that up. We don't know, you know, awakening is not something, you know, it's not some kind of experience that we can hold on to. And, and I, have, I have seen that being held on to. Mm-hmm. And I have experienced that for a very short time in my own experience, a tendency to, oh, maybe want to stay here. Mm-hmm. No, no, mm-hmm. really not. It's not worth, right? There's nowhere to stay. There's nowhere to be. You know, this this is uninteresting, right? Not really, but so so. But we have the capacity to remain in the tall honesty, you see, in the tall truthfulness, in the tall openness, in the tall vulnerability of where we really are. You see, that's what we can do. That's what we can do, right? We can't do anything else, you know. But we can this, you know. So. So you preface what you just said by saying that. Um, you know, realization is in one sense the end of the journey, but it's in the other sense the beginning of the journey because there begins the real process of embodiment. So was what you said after that in the last minute or two uh, uh, an explanation of what you mean by embodiment? And if not, what do you mean by it? This is a very simplified explanation, of course, Mm -hmm. because, you know, somebody asked Papaji, do you still have to be vigilant? Yes. And he said, with every breath. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Because, you know, what, you know, you don't know. Nobody knows. Right? What, what, you know, there's no end. You know, end is an idea. Right? right. End is a story. So, so the embodiment is a real truthful living of what we know is true. Mm-hmm. And that includes uh, body, mind, emotion, uh, sensation, expression in the world. It, it includes everything. Right? That, every, that all your interactions are really in congruency with what you know, right? Mm. With what you really know, not what you think, right? And does it eventually become so, sort of second nature, like riding a bicycle? I mean, you might say, well, do you have to balance, continue to balance? Of course, every moment while I'm riding the bicycle, but it's become so automatic that I don't even think about it. I would say in my experience, you know, because presence is your, your nature, so there's nothing you have to do about that ever, ever. Right. Right. However, the, you know, in my own experience, there is there is a lot of stillness. Right. Mm-hmm. However, there are times that past is present, and boy, am I aware of that when that happens. Right. So so now the the question is: Is there still, you know, an ongoing willingness to just be here? Mm. Because when you say past is present, which I heard you say many times in the recordings, what you mean is past conditioning is coming up in the present and having its influence. Is that what exactly. you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, okay. That's what I mean by past is present, that, that the past arises here, and it is, and we are aware of it, and now we can either be here or not, right? Mm. So it seems, right? Mm. Yeah, so we have a, like with Papaji's vigilance point, we have the choice to sort of, 
or the, the need to be vigilant when the past exerts its influence so as not to be swayed by it. So is that well, what you're saying? So, so what I mean, because, you know, again, we are getting into the hard words territory, like choice, you know? <laughs> yeah, <I mean. laughs> that's, always, that's always a it's point of intention, you know? But, but, but past is present, and can you remain in, the, in surrender, you know? Mm-hmm. Can you really remain in surrender no matter what, you know? No matter what. And that's, it's, sometimes it's difficult, of course, you know? Yeah. That's why it's called past, right? Mm-hmm. Because it has its own moment, and it has, has its own momentum and its own importance, right? It wants to still, you know, tell you that maybe there is something to listen to, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting that you use the word surrender with reference to that. So let's say a past tendency is coming up and causing us, tempting us to behave in a certain way. Um, You're you're saying that surrender is somehow, we've used two words here, surrender and vigilance. Um, How do both of those things play into not being controlled by past conditioning? Um. When past is present, we can either be here or not, right? Uh-huh. So, we could lose our, lose our, our grounding in presence yeah, yeah, or not. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And we can be here. And being here sometimes means, oftentimes, to experience something that is difficult. Mm-hmm. Because that's the reason past is still active, right? Because it has not been experienced before. You know, if it has not been experienced before, it has still momentum. It still appears as, as if it was vital and important and, and, and useful in some way. So, so seeing that, recognizing that, and saying, okay, can I be here, sometimes means experiencing things that are difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what has not been experienced. And that's, though, what would allow us to remain in our nature, right? And when we do that, does it take the steam out of that past uh, influence a little bit so that next time, if there is a next time, it's not going to ha- maybe have as much um, influence? It's either, either you know, you're able to experience it and it never comes back again, which has happened. Mm-hmm. Of course, it happens. Or you have to experience it many, 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 many times <laughs> because that's its momentum, right? But yeah. that doesn't matter again because every time you're willing to be here, of course, uh, its momentum lessens, right? Yeah, you're not reinforcing it. Exactly, because you're not moving with it anymore. You're not saying, you know, well, that's okay and let's just do that, right? Yeah. There's something we kind of skipped over when you were telling your Papaji story. Um, and, and that is the, the word transmission. It seems that, you know, what was really going on there was uh, far beyond whatever words Papaji was speaking or you were understanding. There was a, on a, a, a much more profound level, there was a transmission taking place, which was the oh. real, um, the, the real um, you know, engine behind the transformation the, that you underwent. Um. Mm, it's so hard to it's so hard to say anything about that you know because of course right but can I really say something about it you know mm. well perhaps I, what you could say, say about just, it is oh go ahead I would just say just being in Papaji's presence that means being in the presence of truth being in the presence of somebody who really has recognized truth which means the mind stops there 
it just doesn't have a place to go, right? So so just being exposed to that, you know, does it do something? Of course it does, right? Because when you are in it, you know, like you were using the example of the light bulb, you know, when you are in the field of that, everything within you gets informed. That's the truth. That's the truth. It's a non-verbal information, but yet still it gets informed, right? This is the truth. This is the truth. This is the truth, right? Mm -hmm. So, So, of course... So in light of your own experience with Papaji and also your experience now of many years now as a teacher, how much priority or emphasis would you place on the importance of being in the physical proximity of an awakened person as opposed to kind of doing it on your own? Um, I would say it's individual, you know. I would say when there is the true desire for freedom, it would attract you to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. And if that means being with a person physically or in their proximity or in that sphere of influence, then that's what your job is. And if it means to just be in the mountains or in the middle of the city on your own, then that's you know, like look at Ramana, right? Ramana had a, a spontaneous awakening when he was 16, and mm-hmm. and that was it, right? Yeah. Then he had that still draw and pull, you know, and recognition of Arunachala as something that is the thing, and he made himself there, and after he arrived there, that was it, right? Mm-hmm. There wasn't any need for anything, right? Neither before or after for him. But is that true for all of us? No, of course not. So right. it's individual. Yeah. Same thing with Amachi, you know, she, the hugging saint. She never had a teacher. She just kind of like, it was exactly. like a... Exactly. Natural, yeah. spontaneous. It just happened. Right. Yeah. Um, at one point, you... Are we doing okay on time? You're, uh, you're yeah, we're doing okay. Um, yeah, maybe okay. another another few minutes. Yeah. Okay. At one point, I heard you say something about the strong desire for freedom being instrumental in, um, you know, bringing about awakening. And... Uh, there's traditional um, sources for this too in the Yoga Sutras, for instance. Patanjali talks about you know the the degree of intensity of one's desire is going to have a, an impact on the uh, speed of the realization. But then again, there's this popular term, and in fact, even Papaji said it of stop seeking. So there seems to be a kind of a contradiction there between strong desire and stop seeking. That's a question. <laughs> Yeah, I lost you here for a moment. So oh, okay. Did, how much did you... Contradiction in... Yes, yes, I hear what you're saying. You know, okay, so, good. So, you know, um, I think what Papaji also said, and what, what I would say for sure is that, you know, d- desire for freedom is the only true desire, mm-hmm. right? Because it doesn't seek anything external, you see. It seeks its own nature, right? So it's not a desire for anything, Right? So, so the desire for freedom, what it means, you see, it, it doesn't mean necessarily I'm sitting there thinking, I have to be free, I have to be free, I have to be free, right? But desire of freedom means there's a certain intensity and a certain fire and a certain uh, devotion and a certain surrender to that need to know your own nature and to that need to... to, to, to to find out, you know, to, to there's a certain power to that. There's a certain strength to that, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that is what's going to um, 
that is what's going to, uh, you know, um, help you to discriminate in the beginning between this and everything else, right? Yeah. So, you know, because in the beginning, like, there's so much, there's so many things going on that is like, what's true, you know? And then there's this one place that is just burning with wanting something, wanting something. And what is it? Food, this, that, no, but it's wanting something, right? It's, so, so that I, I find that's instrumental because that moves us towards what we want, right? Mm -hmm. But then, of course, we come into the presence of somebody like Papaji, who, you know, the mind just doesn't enter, right? You know, the mind doesn't enter. I always thought Papaji is like the cookie monster from the Sesame Street, you know, like the mind just gets, you know, eaten up <laughs> in his presence, you know, because he's just sitting there, you know, and the, and the, and the, and the stillness is so powerful, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then you come into a presence like Papaji, and he says, just stop, right? I see. Because you arrived in a place where... It brought you far enough, you see. It took you out of the samsara, you know. It took you out of the, like, everything matters and let's go everywhere and let's do everything. And it focused your attention on something that is really important until you found a place that told you enough. You, you already here, just stop, right? Yeah. That's some... the end of that desire, of course. Of course, but it had, it func it had its function. It, it was natural. So. Very good. I'm glad to hear you say that. Because a lot of times people read this, you know, stop seeking, and, and they, it's way premature. They're not sitting in the presence of somebody like Papaji. And, you know, they might interpret that as, oh, well, I might as well just sit back on the couch and crack a beer, you know, yeah, but, watch. But what he, oh, yeah, but what he, always <laughs> means, what he always means when he says stop seeking, he says now. In this moment, stop looking for anything. Yeah. Look here. Here you are. Don't look for anything. Stop seeking. Right. Stop looking. Stop looking. Stop Just looking somewhere else. Somewhere else. Here it is. That's what he means. Stop seeking now. Now, right? Now. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, okay. A couple more questions, then we'll wrap it up. Um, I've, I've interviewed a number of people who, and I th who, before they had ever heard of Ramana or anything else, um, actually had a visitation from him. They were walking down the street or they were sitting in their bedroom or whatever and this Indian man shows up and they'd never seen him before. Maybe years later they saw his face on a book cover and then, oh, that's the guy I saw. What do you think is going on with that? Well, again, consciousness, you know, by the way, Papaji had visitation from Ramana too, right, uh -huh. before he met him in person. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, the... the uh, Consciousness, the truth responds to a true desire. So wherever there's a true desire, the truth itself will respond to that mm -hmm. in whatever way it's necessary, you see. So if it's a vision of Ramana or a visitation, because it's not a vision, if it's a visitation of Ramana, if it's a book that we find, if it's a word that we hear, if it's a person that we get to talk to and they tell us about something, you know, that's that's a natural mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. It's a natural thing. It just so many people have experienced that, you know, strong desire, they go and they find a book and they go like, wow, you know, because that's their response, right? And there is also something about the lineage, you know. There's also about the something about the lineage that the lineage just I don't know how that is, but it's predestined, right? Mm -hmm. So there will be also that choice, so to speak again, you know, because who is choosing, right? that it ends up in this particular, you know, in this particular stream, in this particular, you know, ocean, so. Yeah. 
to me it's fascinating because it points to the idea that there's you know such a, a depth uh, such a incomprehensibly vast intelligence that's kind of governing the universe that could actually, you know, show us uh, the face of Ramana a decade before we actually even encounter his picture on a book or something, you know, why, it's like fascinating that that this kind of thing can happen. See, our our imagination of what's happening is so small. Yeah, yeah. What we can think is so tiny, so there is Mm -hmm. just such a much vaster you know, a design uh, really happening here, you know, that w- when, w- when we recognize that, when we realize that that's where that sense of unshakable okayness with everything comes from, because when we mm-hmm. recognize that everything is taken care of, really, you know, truly, it's all, it's all been in its design forever, you know, we really don't have to do that, so... Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, it, it, we're hinting around at the, the G word here, you know, God, uh, but there really is that sort of, um, uh, well, you just you expressed it very beautifully just then. Uh, there's a sort of a design or a, a kind of a cosmic intelligence that seems to have a hand in <laughs> how things are going in our lives. It's already happening, you know, it's been yeah. already in motion, you know, we just, we're just catching up, we're just like, oh yeah, wow, that's amazing, that's happening, you know, but... Yeah. I, I read an article the other day that astronomers now believe that there are literally billions of inhabitable planets in our galaxy alone, and, you know, kind of like dwell on that for a second and think about, how, you know, what a vast play this is that, you know, we're playing our little part in. Yeah, and Papaji used to say, you know, millions of pl- universes, you know, mm, yeah. millions of, of beings, mi- you know, in a, in, in a space that doesn't have any depth at all, you mm. see. So. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, this has been wonderful, or to use a phrase that I heard you say many times, and it's gr- I've grown very fond of it, good, good. There we go. You said it, Rick. You did it. You are it. You are the man. It's a very, became a very endearing sort of term. I like the way you say that with your Polish accent. (laughs) So I I really appreciate uh, having had this opportunity. It's been a very enjoyable interview. Um, Is there anything you'd like to say in closing or have we pretty much taken care of it? No, I think it's good. It's good. Okay, good. So um, let me just make a couple of concluding remarks. Um, I've been speaking with Neelam. Uh, This is uh, an interview in an ongoing series. And um, if you have enjoyed this, then you can find many more on YouTube or by going to batgap.com. And you can subscribe there to be notified by email of whenever a new one comes up. Um, And also you can subscribe to the YouTube channel and you'll be notified that way. This is also available as a podcast, so you can listen in audio on your, on your iPod or whatever. And there's a discussion group at batgap.com, which often becomes quite lively with even hundreds of, of sometimes very uh, intelligent um, comments being posted by people around each interview. So each interview has its own little discussion group that develops. So feel free to go there and participate in that if you like. I'll be linking to Neelam's website from batgap.com. So if you'd like to get in touch with her and find out about um, courses and programs that she offers, um, you can just follow that link and you'll go to, and what is it, neelam.org? Is that what Yeah, it's neelam.org. Yeah. yeah, N-E-E-L-A-M. So you can just go there directly, but I'll also be linking to it. Have you written any books? 
No, not yet. We are just working right now. We are working right now to get a book out. So. Okay, let me know when that's out, and I'll link to that yeah, too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Good. Let's just sit for um, quietly, just for a moment, okay? Okay, good. And then you can bring us out of it when you wish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm, thank you, Neelam. Yes, thanks. It's been a joy. Mm -hmm, thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.